Hey, let's just pray one more time. Heavenly Father, as we just are stopping here, we do want to give you our world. We want to give you our nation. Um, as we just get into this political time of year, it's really easy to let everything get worked up and maybe sometimes get our focus off of you and onto a man. Lord, we just want to realize you are the God that we want to follow and serve, and you're the light that we need in this darkness. And I pray that you'd help us to realize that and see that. We do want to give you the men and women serving in the military. Lord, your hand to be upon them and their families. And once again, speak tonight and help us to listen. Give us ears to hear in your name. Amen. We're going to do 18, 19, and 20 tonight, my first Chronicles. Now, 18, 19, 20, it's just a brief little three-chapter interlude here that kind of talks in detail about David's battles that he went through. As we mentioned last week, David had on his heart to want to build God a home, to build the temple. But God said no, and one of the reasons why God said no is that you're a man of war. You have blood on your hands. You'll see tonight in 18, 19, and 20 the amount of blood that David had on his hands. He was a military man. David, in fact, is this, this amazing perspective of all these different sites. He was a man's man. But he would also go out and weep and write uh, poetry and psalms. It's just this amazing background of these different personalities that he has. But here in 18, 19, 20, we focus on the military exploits of that. And you can see this right here in verse 1. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines, subdued them, and took Gath and its towns from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab and the Moabites, became David's servants, and brought tribute. David defeated Hadashar, king of Zoab, as far as Hamath, as he went to establish his power by the river Euphrates. You're just going to see this constant theme. Attack, battle, subduing, fighting. That's what's going on here for three chapters. So now what we do is this. As we're going through Chronicles, you remember the verses that we've been trying to say. Corinthians, Paul said that these people were given to us as an example. An example of what to do and also an example of what not to do. So as we see David's military exploits here, what can we learn from this? Well, this is what I want to start out with. I had you go to Ephesians 6 and 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's go to Ephesians 6 here first. How's this for just a really simple point? Don't ever forget that you're in a battle. I believe as believers we forget on a regular basis... That every day is a battle. Every day is a battle. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, why else would you have to put your armor on unless you're in the middle of a battle? Now, what are you fighting? You're fighting for your marriage. You're fighting to stay pure in an impure world. You're fighting for your kids to hopefully grow up and know Christ and accept Him at an early age. You're fighting to be a witness at work. You're fighting for the generations following you. You're fighting for your friends and your neighbors that you live around for this darkness to be just defeated and for them to come to know the light of Christ. You're fighting to have joy in a world where there's no joy. You're fighting to have a purpose in a world that has no purpose. You're fighting a battle on every front, all over the place, every day. And I think one of the problems we do as believers is we get up in the morning and we just plain out forget that it's a battle. That's, we forget it. I used to make this point, the first thing you should do when you get up in the morning is you should put on your armor. And somebody came up to me after church and said, actually, you should probably not take it off before you go to bed. So I stand corrected. Never take your armor off. Never. And so if Paul is trying to tell us here that you have to put on the armor of God to stand against the wiles of the devil, and you may be thinking, well, what actually am I fighting? Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You may have a spouse that does not know the Lord. He or she is not the enemy. You may have co-workers that do not know the Lord. He or she is not the enemy. It's not a person you're fighting against. You're wrestling not against flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual battle. So since it's a spiritual battle, you have to be able to fight spiritually. Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in that evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Don't jump over verse 16. Verse 16 in simplicity, you're going to get shot at. You're going to get shot at. You're going to get shot at by non-believers. You're going to get shot at by the spiritual forces we're fighting. And I hate to say this, sometimes you get shot at by Christians. You get shot at by everybody. I can't imagine as a believer going into the world without the armor on and realizing there's fiery darts coming at me and saying, Where is my shield? Where is my helmet? We have to be prepared and ready. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. It's a battle. And so when I look at 18, 19, and 20, what I want to do tonight is I just want to look at this battle from a spiritual standpoint. And I want you to get this mindset as we go through these three chapters tonight that everything I do is a battle. It's a battle. And am I ready for this battle? Please go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul's last letter that he wrote, writing to his protege Timothy, and he has some great advice here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You are a soldier in the army of the Lord. Verse 4, no one engaged in a warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. God is trying to tell us here that you are so involved in this battle for souls and for the Lord to take a stand for truth that you don't get yourself caught up in these silly little things in the world. You go into work and they want to gossip and they want to complain and they want to get caught up in things that have nothing to do with eternity. Sorry, I'm too busy fighting a battle to get involved in that. And it's not even at work. It's at home. It's at church. It's everywhere. There's so many different things that want to steal your time and energy away over things that have no eternal purpose in any way whatsoever. I tell you, it's all over. I was thinking the other day about Dawn and I and our marriage. We're coming up to, we'll be married 20 years this year. And I'm very thankful that we don't have these big fights over uh, spiritual matters or, or money or, or vision. We don't. We fight over silly little dumb things like food. You know, most of our battles are about food. I don't know about you guys. After 20 years together, we still can't figure out how to have food without a fight. I don't understand it. And it's amazing in the midst of these disagreements and you start feeling the tension start to build up. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit is saying, James, let it go. He's saying, James, this has nothing to do with eternity. I know Dawn doesn't listen to the Spirit, but I'm, I'm hearing this. And I'm like, we should let these things go. But it's amazing. We, can, we, we care about souls saved. We care about making sure that we're representing Christ and what we do and how we live. But it's the civilian matters. 
that we get ourselves entangled in. Seriously, go back in time over the last couple weeks. Think about the stuff, maybe in your marriage or at work or at home, where have you, that you got really worked up about. Did any of it have to do with heaven and hell? I mean, really, did any of it have to do with heaven and hell? No. Paul is telling us, don't get entangled in things because you're too busy focusing on eternity. Don and I read a marriage book a while ago, and one of the best points in it was that if you have a couple that's focused on soul saved and eternity, they just don't fight as much because they realize everything is just eternal. We're here to represent Christ. But if your focus is not on eternity and soul saved, it's really easy to get caught up and the daily things that really don't matter. What we see here in 18, 19, and 20 is we are in a battle. We are in a fight. Are we ready for this? How many times does the Bible use the term warfare and battle that are weapons of warfare, prayer, and God's word? They're trying to tell us something here. So get ready for the fight, people. Okay, so with that being said, we're ready for the fight. Okay, how do we do this? Well, jump ahead to verse 6. David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Here's our first point on being in a battle. First point on being on the battle. God preserves us, depending on your translations. It says that God saved him. God gave him victory. The whole point is you can't, he can. Who's going to win the battle? He's going to win the battle. Remember where David went into battle against the giant. David had this great comment in 1 Samuel 17. He goes, the battle belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to you. Aren't you thankful? You don't have to win the battle. He does all the fighting for you. It's a fascinating thing. He just wants me to be spiritually ready to fight, to spiritually get my armor on. And then when we get ready to go into battle, he says, oh, James, can you just take a step back for a little bit so that way the Holy Spirit can do all of it for you. So, Lord, I don't have to win this battle? No, you don't have to win the battle at all. The battle belongs to the Lord. He will give the victory. And so what you see right here in verse 6, the Lord preserved David wherever he went. The Lord gave victory. The Lord saved him. You may be out there, and you may have a heart to want to win this battle for the Lord, but you can't. It has to be through the Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Let the Lord do all the fighting. It's really freeing. So now that he's done all the fighting, guess what? We win. Verse 7. David took the shields of gold that were on the servants of Hadizar and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Tipha and from Chun, cities of Hadizar, David brought a large amount of bronze, which with Solomon made the bronze sea, the pillars, and the articles of bronze. You're going to win. And it's an amazing thing to win. It is amazing when the Lord opens the doors and you, you get to see the victory firsthand. And you're like, wow, Lord, this is what a spiritual victory feels like. You actually see impacting eternity. Now, it's really interesting when you win and you impact eternity. It's really easy to start thinking it was me. What does David do with all the spoils, the shields of gold and all the bronze? What does he do with them? Verse 8, he gives them to Solomon to make the articles of the temple. See, any time you have the spoils of war, they're all gods. You and I haven't earned a thing. We haven't earned a thing. But isn't it fascinating? We start to think we have. There you, you taste some type of spiritual success. Maybe you start up a Bible study or a ministry, and next thing you know, it's flourishing. 
You didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. It was all the Lord. Or maybe you're witnessing at work and all of a sudden you're starting to see strongholds come down and people are getting saved and you start thinking, look what I'm doing. No, it's all the Lord. He gets all the glory, all the victory. I'm a big sports fan. I remember reading this story years ago in Sports Illustrated when uh, Michael Jordan won one of his championships. And one of the bench players ran out onto the court after they clinched the game of six victory and came up to Michael Jordan. He grabbed Michael Jordan by the shoulders and said, we won. And the guy told the story that Michael Jordan stopped and looked at him and said, we won. He goes, what did you do? He won. He's Michael Jordan. The bench player did nothing. I feel that way a lot of times spiritually. I'm sitting on the bench watching the game. God wins. I get to run out in the court and celebrate. I haven't done a single thing. But I still get to be part of the celebration. Just remind yourself, in the middle of the battle, when you taste victory, verses 7 and 8, gold and bronze, what have you, it's not yours. It goes all back to the Lord. It's all His in all ways. All His. So with this being said, we're in a battle. How are we going to win? We're going to win, according to verse 6, by the Lord saving us, not us. And what are we going to do when we win? We're going to take all those spoils and say, God, it's yours. It's not mine. It's yours. You get the glory. Because I want nothing to do with this. Now, any quick questions, comments about anything here before we move on to the next point? Okay. How now are we supposed to act in battle? This is where it gets interesting. We're in a fight, we're in a battle. How are we supposed to act? Verse 14, same chapter. David reigned over all Israel and administered judgment and justice to all people. Some translations said he did what was just and right. How do you act in a battle? You act right. You act justly. You do what's right. Haven't you ever as a believer wanted to go down to the world's level? I mean, they're allowed to say words that we're not allowed to say. They're allowed to throw things that we're not allowed to throw. They're allowed to throw little hissy fits that we're not allowed to. Have you ever seen an adult person throw a little temper tantrum? Part of me looks there and says, that is just so utterly embarrassing. The other part of me is jealous because sometimes I want to do that too. They get to do things and react in ways that we're not allowed to react because we have a different moral standard. Verse 14, I'm called to administer judgment and justice and to do what is right. Man, I don't want to do that sometimes. I want to be the person standing in line that gets frustrated like everybody else. I want to be the person in the carry out whatever that's getting upset and ticked. I want to honk my horn for no reason. We're called to a different standard. And we have to remember in the midst of the battle that we can never go down to that level because we're representing Jesus Christ and all that we say and do. So much so, we're called to show kindness to our enemies. Verse 1, chapter 19. It happened after this that Nahash, the king of the people of Ammon, died and his son reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came to Hanan and the land of the people of Ammon to comfort him. Now keep your finger there. We're going to come right back. Go with me real quick to Romans 12. Romans 12. Romans 12 has a great little passage of scripture that really just explains very straightforwardly how are we as believers supposed to act in a non-believing world. Romans 12, please. Here is David showing kindness. Kindness, dare we say, to one of his enemies, the people of Ammon. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. These are great refrigerator verses, people. 
verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Who does no one mean? It means no one. Repay no one evil for evil. That means co-workers, friends, family members, spouses, kids, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Anybody. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Do good. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, real quick, verse 18. Sometimes it's not possible. You can do everything right and they still don't like you. Verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For as written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, the problem is, verse 21, we get overcome by evil. I've had people come up to me over the years, and they are honest, and they say, Listen, I have my, I have my church personality, and then I have my work personality. And... And I'm always like, well, you know what? The Lord wants you to have a Christ personality wherever you're at. Well, yeah, you, yeah, but you don't know the people I work with. If I would go in there and just try to be meek and gentle, I would get chewed up and spit out. And it's like, no, no, no. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's David in the midst of war stopping and saying, hey, the king of Ammon died. Hey, that guy wasn't too bad to me. I'm going to show kindness to those people. Now, militarily, he could have said, these people are weak. Great time to come in and take them over. No, I'm going to go show kindness to them. Guess what happens when you show kindness to people sometimes? Verse 3. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Did his servants not come to, to you to search and to overthrow, to spout the land? Therefore, Hanun took David's servants, shaved them, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. Has that ever happened to you? I hope not literally, but I'm saying, has that ever happened to you? You went to go show love and kindness to somebody that really isn't very nice, and next thing you know, your beard is shaved, and they've cut holes in your garments? I tell you, people, that happens. But this is what happens. I see a lot. Here's the enemy. We try to go show kindness to them. They act like the world. Then we're shocked. So what do we do? Well, that's the way they want to be. I tried being nice to them once. Look what happened. I'll never do that again. I'll never make that mistake. I'll never be walked on. I'm not a doormat. Yeah, you know what? Do you ever kind of look at the life of Jesus? He kind of was a willful doormat. See, here's the thing is, I, I'm a doormat for Jesus. I'm willing to be walked on. If it helps spread the gospel, walk on me. I don't care. Because I want to represent Christ. That gentleness, that meekness. But what we do sometimes when our beard is cut is we want to fight back. So what does David do? Verse 5. Then some went and told David about the men, and he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. I run into this problem sometimes. You're so focused on winning the battle. You're so focused on this eternal battle that you forget that people are getting wounded and hurt in the middle of the battle. And sometimes you need to stop fighting and minister to them. I've met people that are so focused on seeing souls get saved that they kind of forget that there's a body of Christ that's hurting and that they may need to go minister to people. In the midst of the battle, don't forget about those that are hurting. It's really tough sometimes because you get this eternal mindset and you're finally getting it. It's all about Jesus. Well, look at this person. They're really hurting. I don't got time for hurting believers. David was willing to stop and say, these guys are ashamed, these guys are hurting, I need to minister 
to them. What happens? Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. You have to think back thousands of years ago from a Jewish perspective to have your beard shaved off. That was a huge deal. It would be humiliating. Humiliating to have that beard shaved off. Verse 6, And the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David. Hanan and the people of Ammon sent a thousand talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Syria, Makkah, and from Zobah. They basically realized they messed up, so now they hire all these mercenaries. Okay, do you realize what happened? David tried to be nice. His messengers have their beards cut off and their clothes ripped, and now that country is hiring mercenaries to pick a battle, fight a battle. All because David tried to be nice. Now, I know that's happened to you guys. You went into work, you went into school, you went into home, whatever, and I'm going to be nice. And as soon as you got on your line at work, as soon as you walked in the schoolroom, as soon as you opened the door to your house and you said, I'm going to be so nice to my spouse today. You showed kindness, and next thing you know, your beard is shaved. And next thing you know, your spouse is hiring mercenaries to attack you. You know, what happens? You're in the midst of a battle. You're in the midst of war. We forget this. And to go one step further, you're not only in the midst of the battle, you're in the midst of the world, world war. Excuse me. You're completely, utterly surrounded. Verse 10. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind... So, so Israel's now in a war that they didn't even want. They wanted just to show kindness. And now they're surrounded by these mercenaries in the army of Ammon. What are they supposed to do? He chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And verse 11, the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, and they set themselves in battle array against the people of Ammon. So you got Joab's group, you got Abishai's group, and they're completely, utterly surrounded by Syrians and the people of Ammon. But I tell you, in the midst of this battle, here's the truth. In the midst of a battle, you really start to see who your brothers and sisters in the Lord are. See, when you start going through difficult times, you really start to realize, who cares? Who cares? Because look at this. Verse 12. Then he said, if the Assyrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will help you. Verse 12 is just how we're supposed to live. Hey, if I need help, will you come help me? If you need help, I'll come help you. Now that sounds real simple. The problem is this. If someone needs help, I need to be able to willing to look at my calendar of life and say, you know what, i got to let some of my personal desires go because I need to go minister to this person. I need to be able to let go of what I want to do sometimes to go represent Jesus Christ because my brother or sister is surrounded by the enemy and they need help. The flip side of that is sometimes I have to be willing to ask for help. See, whatever season of life you're in, you're either in a season of needing help or you're in a season of giving help. It's really what it comes down to. And this is what I've noticed. Most of us do better giving help than getting help. And we try to um, act real mature and spiritual about getting help. Oh, I don't want to bother anybody. I don't want to put anybody out. And really, honestly, if you cut the layers of that onion, I'm too prideful to ask for help. And I'm telling you, the way the body of Christ works is if you're in a season of needing help, please ask. And if you're in a season of giving help, then give help. And you're going to find out that those seasons can change really quick. 
really quick. You may go from, I'm always the person to help somebody out, to then something happens spiritually, mentally, physically, and now I'm the person that's always asking for help. It's okay to be on both sides of that because that's exactly what you see. This guy, Joab, in verse 12, that says, if they're too strong for me, then you help me. Okay, Joab was a pretty tough guy in the Bible. So for Joab to stop and say, hey, Abishai, if I can't win this, I'm going to need some help. That's a pretty important thing. And I know it's really easy to say I'm willing to help. Let me ask you this. Are you willing to say I need help? Because that's part of the way the body of Christ works. Yes, Carly. Um, when you don't let somebody help you, you're and there's a real good truth to that. You're stealing a blessing from somebody because when you get a chance to help somebody, if you've done it before, you know it's a blessing to help somebody. It is. And I know it sounds weird, but letting somebody help you blesses them. Now, now, Satan likes to come in and say all these type of things of you're bothering them, whatever. That is just a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus himself asked for help. The woman at the well, could you get me a drink of water? He asked his servants to go pick stuff up all the time. In his moment of need before the garden, hey, guys, could you pray with me? People come up to me a lot at church and say, oh, I don't like to have people pray for me. I'm like, Jesus asked for prayer all the time. Be willing to help. Be willing to be helped. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Okay. Now, it would be nice if we could end the message right there. That it's this great couple chapters of, hey, we're in a battle, we're in a war, but guess what? God will save us, preserve us, the battle belongs to the Lord. And you know what? I can't win. It's all the Lord. I haven't earned a thing. The spoils of war, I'm going to give right back over to God. He gets the glory. I'm going to be kind to my enemies. I'm going to minister to those that are hurting. I'm going to help people that need help. I'm going to ask for help when I need help. And then we're just going to stop and say, let's pray and go home. But we have this little 8 verse chapter 20. Verse 1, it happened in the spring of the year at the time kings go out to battle that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Ammon and came to besiege Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Do you know what happened? That's when he decided to talk to Bathsheba. We told you, Chronicles doesn't mention Bathsheba. But keep your finger right here. Jump back just a couple books. Go to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Read how similar verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11 reads and how similar verse 1 of chapter 20 of 1 Chronicle reads. Here's 2 Samuel 11 verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, now go back to Chronicles. Keep your hand in Samuel. It happened in the spring of the year at the time kings go out to battle that Joab led out the armed forces and ravaged the country of the people of Mon and came and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Okay, why did David stay at Jerusalem? Why did Joab have to leave it? Because go to verse 2 of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Verse 2, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked out of the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And you know what happens from there. How did David get in trouble with Bathsheba? He was just utterly lazy. Okay, who's getting up in the evening? As far as I know, David didn't work third shift. He's taking a nap. We've already established verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. But David decided to send Joab. You're in a battle. You're in a war. You're going to run into major spiritual problems when you decide to take your armor off and sleep. You just are. 
when you decide that I'm a little tired from the fight and I'm just tired of all this Christianity stuff. I mean, I still love Jesus, but I'm just going to just take a little step back and I'm going to go to the back a little bit. And I'm going to catch up on some sleep and some rest, take my armor off. And just because I know the enemy's not going to hit me. The enemy's going to go after the weakest link. And if you're at the back taking naps in the evening, yeah, that's when the Bathshebas are going to come out to take their baths. David should have been leading his troops. David should have been at the front of the battle. Instead, he's sleeping and he's resting. He's doing things he shouldn't be doing, which leads to more problems. Spiritually lazy people get themselves in trouble. And this is exactly what happened here to David. But Chronicles doesn't mention it. Just a quick little thing. But you know what's interesting? Look at David's response, verse 2. David took their king's crown from his head, even though David didn't win the battle found it to weigh a town of gold, and there were precious stones in it, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in a great abundance. And when he brought out the people who were in it, he put them to work with saws and iron picks and axes. So David did all the cities of the people of Ammon, then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. It's kind of interesting. David did nothing to win this battle, but yet he's taking the crown and all the spoils. And verse 3 is really interesting. Do we have any good old King Jamesers out there in verse 3? Ryan, what does verse 3 say for you? Yes, King James puts it as he took the people and cut them in half with saws and iron picks and axes. Now, there's two ways to take that. Some people like to say, well, the Hebrew is difficult to understand. We don't think David would cut people in half. That's really not David's manner. And so, therefore, he probably means he really just put them to work. If you have New King James, it will put a little note there that says something to the fact of he put them to work with saws and iron picks. But they'll put a little note saying possibly cut them in half. I don't know about you. There's a big difference between being cut in half and being handed a a saw. So let's just say the Hebrew is difficult to understand, and let's just say that he really did put them to work, manual labor. Okay. But let's say he cut them in half. <laughs> Why would he cut them in half? I heard a pastor teach on this one time and said, have you ever realized what your personality is like when you're caught up in the middle of sin? You're grouchy. You're on edge. Don tells me this all the time. If I come home and I'm just being a real pain, so let's say, what's wrong? Oh, nothing's wrong. No, something's wrong. Because when you get like this, this means something's wrong. And I've noticed that. I've noticed that in counseling with people. I've noticed that in life. If I have somebody come in and tell me how much they love Jesus, but they're a real pain to be around, something is going on behind the scenes, in the heart, in their spiritual walk with the Lord. Because when they're that angry and that frustrated and that upset at life and the world and the wife and the husband and kids, it means spiritually they're not where they're supposed to be. Is it possible... That David hacked these people to death because David was feeling guilty, conviction, condemnation, shame. Because this year and a half of David's life of the sin with Bathsheba, is it possible that he was so angry at himself he takes it out on other people? I don't know. We could make the case that the Hebrews difficult to understand. He really put them to work. Or we could stop and say, is it possible that David in the flesh was so angry he takes it out on other people? Real quick spiritual point here. Just ask yourself, do you ever find yourself hacking other people to pieces because you're not happy where you're at with the Lord? It happens. It happens. We need to finish this up, though. We're running out of time here. Real quick, verses 4 through 8, this sums it up, the battle. Real quick, guys, the battle never ends. 
Look at verse 4. Now it happened afterward that war broke out at Gezer with the Philistines. Okay, so they have war with the Philistines. Verse 5, again there was war with the Philistines. Verse 6, yet again there was war at Gath. So if you're not following that, there's a battle in verse 4, then there's a battle in verse 5, then there's a battle in verse 6. Sometimes that, that's our walk with the Lord. You get up, you fight the battle of the day, you go home, you get up the next day, and guess what? You fight the battle. And then you fight the battle again. And you may be saying, James, I'm fighting the same battle every day. Well, guess what? Verse 4, they fought the Philistines. Verse 5, they fought the Philistines. Verse 6, they fought the Philistines. There's sometimes that you fight the same battle again and again and again. And you may say, this is unfair. Well, wait a second. The battle belongs to the Lord. He gives you the strength to win. He gives you the armor to put on. He'll get you through the battle. But you don't know the battle I'm facing. Well, guess what? Let's kind of take a look at the battle you're facing. Verse 4, are you facing giants? These are one of the sons of the giant. Guess who they fought in verses 4, 5, and 6? They fought Goliath's brother and Goliath's kids. So they're fighting pretty big giants. And guess what? These giants, verse 6, six fingers, six toes, six things on each hand. What do you think that represents? In the Bible, six represents man. It represents sin. These giants represent something unnatural. They're giants. According to what we can tell, Goliath was maybe about nine and a half feet tall. So David now, decades later, is fighting Goliath's sons and Goliath's brother. Do you have a giant in your life that just keeps coming back? And it's just, it's not of the Lord. This is abnormal. The six fingers, the six toes on each hand. Yeah, that's the battle we face every day. And your giant's different than my giant. It's just fascinating. The things that worry me, the things that will knock me down, if I would say, here it is, you take my giant, to you it would probably be something about this big. And you would say, James, that's what tears you down? And if you'd come to me and say, James, this is what tears me down. If I could just have victory over this, I could live the spirit-filled life. And I look at your giant, it's like, that's not a giant. See, everybody has a different giant. And I don't know what yours is, and you don't know what mine is. But I do know this. I'm going to fight this giant in verse 4, and then I'm going to fight this giant in verse 5, and then I'm going to fight this giant again in verse 6. And once I defeat that giant, guess what? I'm going to fight that giant's kids. Then I'm going to fight that giant's brother. And for the rest of my walk with the Lord, it's going to be a battle again and again. And you may say, well, this doesn't sound like a very cheery message. Last verse, then we're done. Deuteronomy 20, please. Deuteronomy 20. Every day you're in a battle. You're in a battle for your marriage. You're in a battle for your witness. You're in a battle for your kids. You're in a battle to stay pure. You're in a battle to have a purpose. Every day it's a battle, and you're going to fight giants every day of your life. But you know what? God is really good at raising up shepherds to be giant killers. This is what I want you to remember as you get ready to go into these battles. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of the battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint 
Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. That's all you need to know. Look at verses 3 and 4 one more time. Today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Okay, you have giants in your life and you have battles in your life. But the Lord says, I'm the one that's going to fight them. The battle belongs to the Lord. Got to remember that. The battle belongs to the Lord. And what I want to finish up here with prayer is that idea of let's give our battles over to the Lord. And as we get ready to close here, it's almost 8 o'clock, so I've got to let you guys go. So if anybody has anything individually I want to pray for, grab me or grab Renee or Rich and we'll pray for you individually. But let's just take a minute or two here and just before the Lord, let's give Him those giants and let's give Him those Philistines that keep coming back. Let's give it to Him. Heavenly Father, I pray that as individuals and as a body, we would put on the armor of God and never take it off. Help us to endure hardships like good soldiers. Help us to not let the the mundane daily things of the world dictate our joy or anything because we're focused on you in eternity. Lord, I give you my giants. I give you my Philistines. I give you my battles. And I pray that everybody else here would do the same. And we just come to you now as a body of Christ silently, individually, and say, Lord, here they are. Here are the giants. We're we're done fighting them. Lord, here are the Philistines. We're done fighting them. They're yours, Lord. And we pray that you would give us victory. And Lord, as the one giant falls and the brother or the son pops up, give us victory. Let's just go to him quietly right now. God, you are the giant killer. And we use that term giant because to us it's big. But to you, it's nothing. Nothing is impossible to God. Thank you for being a God that's so big that there are no giants to you. Lord, we love you. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Hey, don't forget, if you're interested in the baptism, come see me, Rich, or Renee. Love to get you signed up. Like I said, 8 o'clock, so we'll let you guys go. If you've got something you need to pray about, grab one of us sometime here this evening. You guys have a good week, and God bless.